Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, and uh, welcome also to those of you on the, the live stream. We miss hearing your voices, but are glad that you're tuning in and, and joining with us. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we hear God address us from this text, Romans 3, 21 through 26, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It's true. It's authoritative. We have no other hope. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we began this sermon series back in January, I quoted Luther's opening words from his commentary on the book of Romans. Martin Luther says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. And so we've been calling this series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, pure gospel. That is quite a commendation for this letter. And Luther calls this paragraph out of the entire letter the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible, which is quite a claim. The chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. And of course, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable. All of it is useful for teaching and for correcting and for training in righteousness. But what we have here in Romans 3, 21 through 26 is straight gospel, pure, undiluted gospel. It's the bookend to Paul's theme that he introduced back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, when he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that paragraph in Romans 1 sounds a lot like this one in chapter 3, serves as a, a bookend to his opening argument. You, you may recall that three months ago, if you were here during Advent, Greg preached this very text, Romans 3, 21 through 26, as part of our Advent series and it's not typical for us to preach the same text 
back-to-back in such close proximity like that. We, we, we normally probably wouldn't do that, but this is one that we could stand to hear again and again and again. There's a, a quote oftentimes attributed to Luther, though nobody can find it in his writings, that goes like this, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Can you relate to that at all? Do you personally ever struggle to believe that your sins are actually forgiven? Does it ever seem to you too good to be true? Do you at times find yourself thinking hard thoughts about God, imagining that he is reluctant to forgive you yet again? That he's unwilling to help you, that he's unreasonable? Does your assurance that your sins are forgiven ever just disappear, leaving you with the haunting thought, I'm going to hell. Believers experience that at times. Are you ever besieged by the guilt of some past sin? Do you feel like you can't shake the the nagging suspicion that God will on the day of judgment, catch you on some technicality and break the news to you that though you really tried and though you really wanted to believe, though you you really, really wanted to trust in him, you wanted to be forgiven, you just technically didn't get it right. I think a lot of professing Christians have that sense, God's he's going to get me on a technicality. Do, Do you ever find yourself... Maybe it's just during your your morning Bible reading, you you just become aware, I'm doing this to earn approval from God. I'm trying to convince God, as one person put it, that I'm not a waste of his time. And yet deep down you have the sense you're not fooling anyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of justification by grace through faith in Jesus is the remedy to all of your fears, all of your guilt, all of your worries. And faith in the gospel comes through hearing the gospel. And so we could stand to hear it again because it's in hearing the gospel that God produces in us faith. Justification by grace through faith in Jesus is Paul's theme in Romans 3, 21 through 26. It's the centerpiece of the whole Bible. It's pure gospel. Paul is speaking here about justification, righteousness. In the English translation, it's hard to tell that those are the same words, but he uses in the Greek six times words from that same family of words that mean justification, righteousness. And we know from Romans 4, 6 through 8 that justification means the full and complete forgiveness of all your sins. This is what Paul says in Romans 4, 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. 
apart from works. That's justification. When God counts you as righteous, not because of what you do. Paul quotes David from Psalm 31. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed, happy, joyful, satisfied, secure is the man whose sins are forgiven. That blessing, the forgiveness of your sins, is the bedrock upon which every other blessing God lavishes on you rests. How sweet that sounds. But listen to how the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink speaks of the blessing of justification. He writes, Certainly, there can be no peace of mind and conscience, no joy in one's heart, no buoyant moral activity or a blessed life and death before the guilt of sin is removed. All fear of punishment has been completely eradicated. And the certainty, the certainty of eternal life in communion with God fills one's consciousness with, a, with his, its consolation and power. But this benefit, this blessing, this privilege, the complete forgiveness of sins is so immense that the natural human intellect cannot grasp and believe it. Or if you read that positively, when your guilt is removed, when you know that your sins have been forgiven, when you know that there is no punishment left, no wrath remains, when you know that you're right with God and that you face an eternity of happy tomorrows in fellowship with Him, then you have peace of mind and you have joy in your heart and you have this buoyant moral activity and you have this blessing in your life and in your death. But Bavink says that blessing, justification, the forgiveness of sins, it's too good to be true to the natural mind. It's so immense that the natural mind cannot grasp it. So where does that leave us? There's hope. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Revealed, displayed, made known to the world. God reveals himself to us. That means, when it says the righteousness of God has been manifested, it means that through the sacrifice of Jesus, God himself has made a way to maintain his absolute justice and righteousness while simultaneously completely acquitting guilty sinners who believe in Jesus. And the Son of God took on flesh to display that. The Spirit of God inspired the words of Scripture to declare that. And the Spirit of God moves among us to give us understanding, not just to the natural mind, but to our heart, so that when we hear that gospel, we believe and we know that's true not just out there in general. That's true for me. That's the work of the Spirit to cause us to believe this gospel. This text was inspired by the Spirit so that you could know that 
and grasp it and treasure it and trust it and stake your life and your death and your eternity on the certainty that in Christ Jesus, God does not count your sins against you. And so to that end, I want to give you five truths about this forgiveness from Romans 3, 21 through 26. Truths that should secure your confidence in and your reliance on Jesus every time your guilty heart condemns you. First, this forgiveness was foretold. It was foretold. It was promised in advance. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That The righteousness of God throughout Scripture is this massive concept. It encompasses who God is in His character and His attributes. He's righteous and He's just and He is what He is because he does what he does. And he does what he does because of who he is. So his righteousness also includes what God does. That is, he judges justly. He passes just verdicts. And the righteousness of God in Scripture also includes a gift that God gives when he passes a judgment and gives the legal status of righteousness to those who trust in him. It's a huge concept. So when verse 21 tells us that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, that should get our attention because the law of God does manifest the righteousness of God. The law of God reveals God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice. Romans 7.12 says the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. You want to know what God's righteous standard requires? He's revealed it in his law. But the whole point of Paul's argument, Romans 1.18 all the way up through chapter 3 verse 20, was to show that no human being can be justified in God's sight by keeping the law because we've all broken the righteous law. Nobody can be acquitted in the court of heaven by their own effort to keep the law. The verses right before this, Paul just got done telling us that law, that righteous law that does reveal God's righteousness to the world, that law just stops every mouth. It holds every last human being accountable to God. It brings the knowledge of sin and nobody is acquitted by that law. Therefore, If guilty humans who deserve God's wrath are to be lawfully acquitted. By lawfully acquitted, we mean not through some loophole, not through some technicality or some oversight or miscarriage of justice, but actually rightly acquitted. Then God's just judgment has to be revealed somewhere else apart from the law, the law that convicts you. But it can't contradict the law. Otherwise, it would be a miscarriage of justice. And that is, Paul is proclaiming to the world, that is what God has done in Christ Jesus. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, the ESV, I think it's the wording better, to which the law and the prophets testify. There's no contradiction with the law. This is actually what the law always foretold, always promised, always foreshadowed. It's not some dramatic change of course that, suddenly arrives, this is what God's law always pointed to. All of Scripture, that's what Paul means by the law and the prophets. All of Scripture, the entire Old Testament pointed to this, foreshadowed this, that God would do this very thing, pass a just verdict regarding sinners that acquits them completely of their sin in His sight 
all the ceremonial laws, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, all of it pointed forward to the time when God would deal with sin once and for all through the sacrifice of his son. And that's why Luther can say about this paragraph, this is the chief point of the whole Bible. It's the climax of all of it. The law and the prophets pointed to this. But just consider one such promise from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And God is saying that over and over and over throughout the Old Covenant. And it's essential for you today to know that because unless you understand that God has always been a merciful, gracious, and forgiving God who planned and purposed from before the foundation of the world to display the glory of His grace by justly judging you righteous in Christ. Unless you know that's who God has always been, you will be plagued by this relating to God as though He's actually, probably, perpetually frustrated with you and annoyed by you and displeased with you. You get that? Like, if, if you think, fundamentally, at root, God is a God of wrath, and then he came up with this plan B, you will always view salvation as just kind of God making an exception, just excusing you, but actually being really bothered by you. And I think a lot of us relate to God like that's his default disposition. His default toward us is wrath. But he pretends to put up with us. Marcionism was a second century heresy that taught the God of the Old Testament is actually a different God, an inferior God, a God of vengeance and wrath, short-tempered and angry. The God of the New Testament who reveals himself in Jesus, that's a God we like. He's comfortable, forgiving, gracious, and that's a heresy. This is who God has always been. The God who reveals his grace in Christ is the God of the Old Testament who always meant to save for himself a people for his own possession, justified, forgiven, reconciled through the sacrifice he himself would provide. All scripture reveals God to be that way. When God reveals his covenant name to Moses and reveals his glory, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, this is the name, the revelation, the description God gives of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. All the way back there, we have this proclamation, God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and he does not clear the guilty. How could that be? The point I want you to get here is that this forgiveness God offers you in Christ, because it was foretold, because all the law and the prophets pointed to it, it's not God's plan B. It's not like God started out with law and said, ah, that's not working, let's try something else. It was always his purpose to pardon 
freely and fully in Christ Jesus. Second, forgiveness is for you. For you. Singular. Personally. I think many of you probably have no doubt believing at all that that God can and that God does forgive others, but you struggle to believe that God forgives you. Not hard to think, God forgives people, but me, am I right with God? I think it's easy to fall into that way of thinking because the sins of others just seem less real than our own. Right? I mean, we, we know they're real, but, but we don't feel guilt. When other people sin, we don't feel guilty. We might think, well, that's bad. But we don't feel guilt the way we do when we sin. Right? And the sins of others, we do feel something if they sin directly against us. Then we feel some bitterness and we have some sense of justice that rises up and we say, well, God, don't let them away. It's too easy for that. Right? So we feel guilt when we sin. We feel bitterness when other people sin against us. When it's personal, we feel deeply. But beware that that turns your feelings, either guilt or bitterness, into the measure of whether or not someone is forgivable. Right? And thankfully, God's forgiveness of you is not based on your feelings. And better yet, the gospel announces that this forgiveness is is available for you. In the previous section here in in Romans 3, Paul's point was that no one is righteous. The law stops every mouth. The entire world is held accountable to God. And his argument in Romans 1 through 3 is summed up here in verse 23, for there is no distinction, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Every last person. And thanks to the Romans' road to salvation, Romans 3.23 is probably one of the most familiar Bible verses in the church. Everybody's got that one memorized. Unfortunately, the rest of the sentence is less familiar to us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a period there. It continues. And are justified by his grace as a gift. All have sinned and are justified. All are justified by his grace as a gift. So Paul's point shifts from proving the guilt of all humanity to asserting that forgiveness is available to all. To all. All who? All sinners. All those who have treated God's glory with scorn and contempt. Now, he's not saying everybody is justified, but he's saying that offer is available in the gospel to everyone who does believe. And that's, that's scandalous. Who is Justification, forgiveness of sins for, for all those who sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Put that together with verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All sinners who believe are counted righteous. But that allness of salvation, it's, again, it's easy to, to hold that out there like a big mass of people, crowd of people gathered together worshiping God, and to imagine you're not included in that. And I think that's how some are tempted to think. But the assertion here is that any and every sinner who believes is justified, forgiven, completely 
acquitted. The only kind of righteous person before God is a sinner who has been counted righteous by God. And, and that corrects, I think, a possible misunderstanding coming out of Romans chapter 2, where Paul proved that God shows no partiality. He doesn't favor anyone because of their ethnicity or their class or their status. Nobody's right with God because of their Jewishness or their circumcision or because they have access to the law. Rather, the true people of God are those who have been made new on the inside through a work of the Spirit of God. And I think some people, maybe you're this way, hear that and reason to a false conclusion. Something like, well, if, if God has to change me, he has to do that, there's nothing that I can do, then what if God doesn't want to save me? What if I'm not chosen? What if I'm here just praying and praying and praying and begging God and trying to believe and trying to convince him that I do believe and he just doesn't help me? But that treats salvation like winning the lottery. I hope I'm one of the lucky ones and I'm, I'm probably not. That is simply not how the gospel is proclaimed. Hey, God saves some of the lucky ones and you are probably not in that group. No, the gospel is God saves everyone who believes. And the response of faith says, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. And it's true for me. When you hear God saves all who believe, you should not think, and I'm probably not among those, you should think, that's true for me because that's what faith does. Faith knows the particulars are included in the general. That is good news for you. Third, forgiveness is free. Verse 24 says we are justified by his grace as a gift. Those six words, by his grace as a gift, they're not hard to understand or comprehend, but like Bavink told us, they are impossible for the natural mind to accept. And there are two sides to grace as a gift, free grace as a gift. From the side of the one receiving, it means you don't pay anything. You don't give anything in exchange for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's, it's free for nothing. You, you can't obligate God to give this to you. So the only hope is that God freely gives salvation. And, and that's the flip side of this, from the giver's side. For grace to be free, it has to be freely given. If you hold a gun to someone's head and they give you what you demand, you may receive it for nothing, but it's not a gift. So when Paul says, we are justified by his grace as a gift, this assures us that God forgives you willingly from his heart because he wants to, because it's his joy to, not because he's begrudging, not because someone's twisting his arm, not because he'll just tolerate you and put up with you. He does it enthusiastically. He does it gladly. And that should banish all sorts of nagging thoughts and suspicions and fears toward God. As some people think the way salvation works is that God the Father was angry and then Jesus, the nice one, stepped in and kind of you know, calmed his father down just long enough for us to get out of there. But if he ever gets his hands on you, 
Verse 25 says, God put forward Christ Jesus, his son. God the Father, the one we sinned against, the one we offended, he offered his son as a propitiation by his blood. He gave. God so loved the world that he gave. Do you know him as the giver? The great giver. The one who loves you and gave his son for you. The new covenant promise in Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41 just assures us God's heart in this. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. In fact, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and with all my soul. That's God's promise to his people. Wholehearted rejoicing in doing good to you. And so the psalmist can say in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me, chase after me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Fourth, this forgiveness is full. It's complete. One commentator remarks about this passage, what gives this paragraph its unparalleled significance is the number of perspectives from which God's justification of sinners is considered. Paul just heaps up these deep and rich and glorious theological terms. He speaks of justification in verses 24 and 26, and he calls it redemption in verse 24, and he speaks of propitiation in verse 25, and every one of those terms is just packed with meaning, and when they're stacked on top of each other like they are here, collectively they testify to us that God's saving work in pardoning you, forgiving you, reconciling you to himself is complete It's full, it's done. There's nothing for you to add to it because his work on your behalf doesn't lack anything. Verse 24, Paul says, all are justified by his grace as a gift. And then verse 26, he calls God the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And to justify doesn't mean that God makes somebody morally righteous by changing them, transforming them internally like doing surgery on you. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If justifying the wicked meant rehabilitating them and turning them into good people, that would not be an abomination to God. To justify then is a, it's a legal concept, a courtroom term. It's a declaration of acquittal, which is why it's a miscarriage of justice if you have somebody proven guilty in court to declare they're innocent and free to go. That would be an abomination to God. Justify means to declare righteous, to acquit, to free from all charges of guilt. means to find the accused not guilty, to pass that verdict. The opposite of convicting or condemning the guilty. And in the courtroom of God's judgment, to be justified comes with the right to eternal life. To be acquitted means you have the right to enjoy God forever. So where does that verdict come from? It can't come from the law. The law condemns us. 
Paul says that God justifies, verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So justification is linked to redemption. Redemption is paying a price in order to set someone free, whether a slave or a criminal or a prisoner. A price is paid to redeem, to ransom. And so Paul's saying, you're justified because the price of your guilt has been paid. And in Paul's writing, redemption is always connected to the forgiveness of sins, and it's always exclusively in relationship to Jesus. Ephesians 1.7, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The price has been paid. You deserve to die for your sin. Jesus, the righteous, has died, so you are redeemed. Then look at verses 24 and 25 where Paul says we are justified through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross is the price paid to redeem you from the curse of the law so that you could be justified and forgiven and declared right with God. Propitiation here translates a Greek word that the only other place it occurs in the New Testament is Hebrews 9.5 where it clearly is referring to the mercy seat which was the, the lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets of God's law were kept inside the Holy of Holies. And in the Greek Old Testament, it's the word that's used to describe, to refer to the mercy seat, that lid, that covering over the Ark of the Covenant. Listen to Exodus 25, 22, explaining the significance of the mercy seat. God says, there, over the mercy seat, I will meet with you. So this is a point of fellowship with God communion with God. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you. This is where God communes with and reveals himself to his people. The Hebrew word for that cover just means to cover. And it's related to the idea of atonement because in order for there to be any atonement, any reconciliation at all, your guilt has to be covered. Your sin has to be covered so that God's wrath against sin can be removed. The, the mercy seat is an incredible, powerful symbol. The point where God manifests his presence to Israel is right over top of the law that Israel has broken. But the law is covered by this mercy seat. And that mercy seat is sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice of atonement once a year on the day of atonement. So you have this blood-splattered cover covering the law, and that's where God manifests himself. And Paul says, all of that rich symbolism is fulfilled in Jesus. He covers your sin. He covers your guilt, and he does it with his blood, not with the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away the guilt of human sin, but with the blood of the righteous Son of God. So God acquits you of all charges. That's justification. He does that by providing his son to die the death that God's righteous law demands for your transgression. That's redemption. So that all your sins are washed away, covered, removed as far from you as the east is from the west, and God's wrath is satisfied. That's propitiation. Brothers and sisters, ours is such a full salvation. And you can't, you, you cannot, and you ought not 
ever try to add anything to it. Finally, this forgiveness is fitting. It's fitting. That is, it's just. It's right. It's, it's true. Your confidence and assurance of salvation depends on understanding this because unless you're convinced that God's justifying declaration about you is stronger and more authoritative than the reality of your sin, you will be plagued by chronic guilt. Because you know the reality of your sin. You know that what you've done, you've done. And one reason that this free and full forgiveness is so difficult to accept is that we all know there is no physical way to go back and undo the past. You ever have that, maybe just in a relationship with somebody you've wronged and you ask for forgiveness and they might say they forgive you and you, you still just think, but it, but it happened and I did that and I want to change it and I can't. The, the reality that you can't go undo what you did haunts us. So how can God call you righteous when you know you're not? Is he lying? Is he pretending? Like, I'll just, I'll just look the other way and pretend I didn't see that? Is he perverting justice by acquitting the guilty? If that's what you think God does, then, then you will always have the thought in the back of your mind that your sin is always in the back of God's mind. But the answer is verses 25 and 26. This was to show. What was to show? This putting forth of the Son of God to redeem you by His blood. That was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness. Twice Paul says, God did this. He put forth His Son Jesus as a sacrifice by blood for your sin to show His own righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier. Or the sense is, so that he might be just even as he justifies the sinner who's fallen short of his glory, but trusts in Jesus by faith. God upholds his justice by punishing in Jesus all the sins of all those who trust in Jesus so that those who are counted righteous both before Jesus came and after he came, might actually have a real and true verdict pronounced about them. I mean, I think a lot of human forgiveness, you know when you say to somebody, I'm sorry, and their response is, it's okay, and you just have the sense like, we both know it's not, and that doesn't quite, it, quite cut it. I'm not looking for it. it's okay, That's, you're lying. God doesn't forgive that way. He doesn't say, it's okay. The, the, the Son of God hanging on the cross is proof to us our sin is not okay. And God confirms to us, he's not sweeping anything under the rug. He takes sin completely seriously and he justly judges all sin in his Son on the cross so that he can be the righteous judge of sin and do so without destroying you. And then he can pass a just verdict about you without lying, without pretending, 
without perverting justice. I mean, when he says you're forgiven, that's the right verdict. When he regards us as righteous, that is your legal status. It's just like a tiny picture of it, but when I officiate a wedding, the, the, the most incredible moment is when I get to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And with a word, a legal status is changed. That's what a justifying declaration does. And with the word, he says, righteous. And it's true. And he's not lying. Because he gave his son. That is, I mean, we have this sense mercy is unmerited, it's unearned, it's not deserved. But do you know that your righteous status is also just and fitting and appropriate because of Jesus? That's the forgiveness God provides in Christ. And the only right response, the only right response to God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus is faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, just in case you missed it. Verse 25, justification, redemption, propitiation is to be received by faith. Verse 26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God gives, faith just receives. There can be no other response to a free gift. You just Receive, that's what faith does. You just grab on to all that God promises to you in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins and every other promise he makes and secures by Jesus' blood and you say, that's true for me. I know it because you said it. That's what faith is. Faith is the assurance. It's the conviction God will do what he has promised. So what if you're not convinced? What if you don't have that assurance? Then repent because that is a sinful response to the gospel. It is not appropriate for you to question God's word. It's not humble to sit under that declaration that all who believe are saved and say, well, I don't know if I'm doing it right or I don't know if it applies to me. The only right response is to say, God, your words are true and I believe you. And if you think, well, I don't wanna be presumptuous, I don't wanna be self-deceived, there's nothing presumptuous about taking God at his word. That is the humble response. In fact, instead of questioning the promises of God in the gospel, you would do well to doubt your own doubts every time they come up in your mind. Don't chase after every doubt that goes through your mind. Am I really saved? Am I really forgiven? Am I really right with God? And then follow that thought down the rabbit hole of introspection is not humble because it's questioning the promises of God. Listen, faith, saving faith that receives this promise, I, I think some of you may be trying to convince God that you believe when the reality of the gospel is that he has done everything necessary to convince you that he loves you and forgives you. 
That's it. The question is not, can you convince him? The question is, has he convinced you? He has done everything needed. These are the most comforting words in Scripture. Hear the gospel with faith. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's pray. Father, we believe. We believe you because your words are true. Like gold refined in the fire, pure, precious. Thank you for this precious gospel. Thank you that you, by your own initiative and desire and pleasure, you have reconciled us to yourself in fullness and freely and justly and forever. We trust you. And we pray that that gospel would produce in us as a community of your people joy and peace and confidence and boldness and hope and buoyant moral activity and everything else that flows out of the assurance of knowing we are right with you by your work and not by our own. We love you, Lord. Amen.